This is Passport to Everywhere, an incredible worldwide journey as your host, Melissa Biggs Bradley, transports you to dream destinations, introduces you to extraordinary guests from all over the world, showcases the current state of travel, shares valuable insights, takes you behind the scenes at some of the most iconic hotels, and explores the future of travel. This is your your Passport to Everywhere. When she was 15 years old, Patricia Schultz got on her first airplane and flew to the Dominican Republic alone. The music and revelry that filled the streets, the delicious avocados and plantains that she tasted, and the lively baseball games all stunned and excited her. This girl from small town upstate New York was suddenly overtaken by wanderlust and has since committed her life to experiencing as much as she can of the wonders of the world. That Dominican passport stamp marked her first visit to what is now a list of more than 150 of the 190 countries recognized by the UN. Not only is Patricia a prolific traveler, but she's also been a renowned travel writer for over 30 years. I don't think there's a better person with whom to discuss bucket list trips, transformative travel practices, or group and solo trips and practical packing tips than Patricia. She actually calls some of her practical packing tips defensive ones. The reason she is one of my favorite travel sounding boards is because not only has she traveled a ton, but she thinks deeply about all of the aspects of travel, from the philosophical to the practical. And this is why her New York Times best-selling series, 1,000 Places to See Before You Die, have encouraged millions of others to get out and see the world. Patricia recently released a new book, Why We Travel, 100 Reasons to See the World. While her previous books delve into where to travel and some practical logistics, This one explores why we travel, but also how to make the most out of trips. Her personal anecdotes, favorite travel quotes, and the stunning accompanying photos are bound to inspire wanderlust in anyone. Coming up on Passport to Everywhere, I'll be speaking with renowned travel author Patricia Schultz about where to travel in 2023, the magic of group travel, and how to pack defensively. And stay tuned for this week's travel hack on how to conquer jet lag. Providing essential information and brilliant insight into the world of travel. This is Passport to Everywhere with Melissa Biggs Bradley. Thursdays at noon, 9 a.m. Pacific on Sirius XM Business Radio, Channel 132. The journey continues. You're listening to Passport to Everywhere with Melissa Biggs Bradley. Patricia, thank you so much, by the way, for taking the time to do this. I'm thrilled to see you again, be with you again. I want to talk, obviously, about your new book, Why We Travel, A Hundred Reasons to See the World. But also, I'm going to pick your brain about bucket list travel and how travel transforms us, because those are all threads in this book. But you are such an authority on all those things. So why don't we start by hearing a little bit about how you turned your passion for travel into a career, because it was kind of accidental. It wasn't a plan. It was entirely accidental. You know, that life-changing moment of graduation day after four years of of education of all sorts and levels. And I mean, those four years were super important to me as a you know young kid out of upstate New York. I went to our nation's capital, the Washington, D.C., which was you know hugely international in a way that I didn't quite anticipate because I simply didn't know what to expect. But um, it did kind of you know open the door for me without ever having left campus. 
but I did do a junior year abroad. I came back and finished, grabbed my passports as soon as I had my diploma in one hand and my ticket in the other. And I was kind of out of there because um, while everybody was very self-assured about their futures and you know, continuing their studies or going home to take up the family business, um, I really was quite lost at sea. And I thought, well, let me just tool around a little bit into this, you know, famous gap year that turned into many gap years. And in traveling insatiably, I might add, in those years when you could, you know, there were no responsibilities, kids, mortgages. It really was the perfect moment and highly understanding parents. Um, It came to me that if one could only follow what one loved, wouldn't that be the most invaluable, special way to spend a life? But I didn't know how to make it happen. And really, I got a phone call that fell out of the sky that was from a friend of a friend who was working with a a professional travel writer who had submitted something about Tuscany, where I had taken up roots temporarily and for a dollar fifty, could I rewrite the entire chapter? And you know, I already was of that character where you said yes to everything and then figured it out later. So um, I wrote what I thought was a stellar interpretation of one of the most beautiful corners in all of Europe, and I wrote it and rewrote it. I don't know how many dozens of times, and you know, it passed muster, and they printed it. And I thought, well, that was pretty easy. And of course, it was not. But in the meantime, it was, you know, that light bulb that went off that maybe, you know, a profession didn't need to be conventional nine to five, typical expected. It could be something that was more unconventional that didn't always, you know, pay the bills on time. But had you live a life that really, you know, satisfied you and exhilarated you at best at every turn. And so it took a few decades But along the way, I saw things and met people and experienced places that um, were just life changing to me. And while I had these four very impressive and indelible years of academia, it really was everything that I learned following university that was of importance to me. So I accepted one assignment and then three and then 10. You know, at the end of the day, if I was lucky, I had half of my expenses covered and $1.50 in the bank. You know, fast forward, here I am. And I guess I did good. I think so. Well, you did, as you said, you accomplished what you wanted, which was to have a career that was doing something that you really loved. But you actually took that career in a way, I think, and turned it into more than that because you, in A Thousand Places to See Before You Die, established yourself as really an authority, which can sometimes happen in a career, but doesn't always. But you really put down sort of a flag in the ground and said, I'm going to make a very opinionated selection of the places that one should see before they die. Can you talk about how that project came about? Yes. And again, talk about kismet and serendipity, which are wonderful travel companions to accompany you through life. But I shared by sheer chance a taxi from my home in Florence to the airport outside of Florence with a friend of a friend of a friend 
who was American, who had a book contract called Made in Italy. And she had a very meager advance, which had been spent in the first 10 minutes, and a book manuscript to submit months later. And she was going home to tell her publisher that she was in something of a pickle. I raised my hand and I said, no one knows Italy better than I. So we collaborated. We did this book called Made in Italy. And it was with the publisher who recognized that I was able to meet deadlines. I knew something about travel. I was reasonably fun enough to work with. And was I interested in doing a book that ultimately came to be called and came to be 1,000 places, but that we brainstormed first about for a few meetings. So had one thing not led to another, had I not you know, accepted that first Made in Italy contract, which I literally was paid pretty much nothing for, but it cemented my relationship with the publisher who came to be really the foundation for this notion that a book of this kind really could be one person's voice. You didn't need a team. You didn't need you know different people assigned to cover different regions of the world. But they gave me a year, but I took eight. I realized I had bitten off a lot more than I could chew accepting the contract to do it in just one year. They said, well, take two. But it was quite a challenge. It was highly daunting. But I had the most remarkable and understanding, encouraging publisher. And my first question to him was, well, who am I writing for? Because I had done travel guides prior to that, and they would always give you a kind of demographic, you know, between this age and that, um, well-traveled, not traveled, different categories, price ranges. But he really gave me carte blanche. And he said, at the end of the day, write for yourself. And I thought, well, that's easy enough. But in fact, it was easy enough. There's so much in terms of, um, you know, experience. Is it, is it the people? Is it the food, the cuisine? Is it design or architecture? Is it history? And if it is history, is it early civilizations? Is it contemporary history? Is it music? And again, is it Zydeco? Is it Renaissance? So the book is really across the board. And as a result, I think it appeals to all kinds of travelers, whether you're you know, just out of university like I was and you really don't have a clue where to start. Well, you know, here is a book that's easily organized into regions of the world because Maybe it's Europe or maybe it's, you know, Cambodia. You know, do you want to go to Southeast Asia? Do you want to go to South America? So I tried to make it as user friendly as possible. And I tried to make it as diverse at the same time as possible, because I think that, you know, we all have these trends we follow. We all have these, you know, special niches of experience and corners of the world that we particularly love. But Ultimately, I hope it encourages people to branch out and experience, you know, the other 900 places that you didn't really give much thought to unless until somebody mentions it. And then, you know, the light bulb goes off and it's like, yeah, I saw a movie about that. Let's go. It's 20 years in 2023 since that first edition came out. 
And obviously, tons of things have changed. If you had to pick some of the biggest changes in travel over those two decades, what would you say they are? I think being an independent female Western American traveler myself, I'm aware, although not terribly so. I mean, I'm pretty much aware of all things, but it does strike me. It does resonate when I see that there are possibly more independent female solo travelers than there are male. I mean, really what I focus on most is Am I seeing a lot of American tourists? You know, who are they? Are they, you know, retired? Are they 20-somethings? I am aware that women travelers of all shapes, sizes, ages, budgets are traveling in massive numbers into areas that are far more accessible, which is another thing that strikes me as astonishing. You know, even five or 10 years ago, let alone 20 Areas that were considered, you know, off the charts, impossible to travel to, maybe not even possible politically or ideologically encouraged us to travel to. And that have, you know, better air connections or more budget friendly that are more considered more welcoming now than they were in the past. So between, you know, the women who I see in larger numbers and more frequently, especially now with digital nomads and people working from any place other than a conventional home somewhere in the U.S., making their homes everywhere in the world, And also to places like, you know, look at Antarctica. Do you know anybody who is not planning to go to Antarctica within the next year or three? I mean, there was a time when it was considered a pipe dream for so many people because we couldn't even place it on a map, let alone feel that we could afford it. A lot has traveled. I just think that Americans in greater numbers across the board are traveling, regardless of where they go and who they are and what they look like and what their gender is. I think Americans are traveling. I mean, from generation to generation, that's always been the way it's been. Yeah. It's funny because I just came back from my first trip to Antarctica a month ago. How did I and, know? How did I know? <laughs> and and I, I completely agree with you. The, the accessibility and the interest is amazing. But are there places that you would add to the book now or that you're planning on adding as you update the book that were obviously not possible to include in the first edition? Well, you know, um, another pearl that my publisher told me in terms of writing for yourself, what interests you, because many of these places, and I always pull this number out of the air, I always say that about 20% of the places in the book I haven't yet been to, but from one addition to the next, meaning one update to the next, I will try to have visited those 20% to make sure that in fact they belong in the book. And, you know, so far I gladly can say that I haven't been wrong yet because I do vet them and I do brainstorm with friends of mine who are established travel writers who have been physically to those places that I personally have not yet experienced or who even live there. So I add them to each new edition without yet having visited 
from one edition, like I said, to the next, I will try to visit them. And in doing so, I rewrite those places now from a more personal experience for the new update. But also knowing that along the way, you discover new places that you didn't even know about yourself. You know, as nobody is ever so well-traveled that they're not open to new places that need to be experienced. And in, in my case, that need to be included. One of my more recent trips pre-pandemic was to Laos in Southeast Asia because it's an area of the world that I just so love. I had been to all of the neighboring countries, to Thailand, of course, and Vietnam and Cambodia, but I had never made it to Laos. And it's probably now my favorite destination. Why hadn't I been there before? I have no reason to, to give. It's just that, you know, the world is large and time is short. Also, the area of the Balkan Peninsula in southeastern Europe Everybody's been to Croatia. People are now spilling over into Montenegro. Slovenia doesn't get the love that it deserves. Totally um, I agree on that one. Oh, I'm, I just <laughs> fell completely in love with Slovenia. Isn't it surprising to you that, you know, people aren't lining up to, you know, book their tickets to Slovenia? In a way, it's nice that they're not because I was there last yeah. spring and I felt like it, there really were very few travelers. And so the local people were so thrilled to have you join <laughs> in to every experience they were having. But what a country and what a group of people and, and a history. I love that country. Yeah. And, you know, it's so accessible. We've used that word a lot, but if you're in Venice, <laughs> you can almost go, you know, northeast over the border into Slovenia for dinner. It's so close to countries that get massive numbers and people bypass it often on the way to Croatia, which just gets a lot more attention. But there are also other countries like Bosnia, Herzegovina and Kosovo and and Macedonia. So that whole area to me was just an eye-opening experience because it was like, where are the Americans? You always think that because it quote unquote doesn't get much tourism means that you won't see a single tourist or traveler. But in fact, European tourists have been going there for generations, but American tourists, not so much. So there's always new places, you know, that I add. Sadly, there are places that I take out, but only with great hesitation. I need to pull, for example, Syria, which was in my last edition. And that breaks my heart because it turned out to be one of those who knew countries that just, you know, blew me away that the people you were mentioning, you know, the people, the, it's always the people who are often the winning factor that are always the, the lifelong memory that you bring back. You know, their smiling faces, their act of kindness, the invitation home for dinner, the young girl behind the desk at your hotel that took you by the hand and walked you over to her favorite restaurant in the neighborhood. You know, so the people of the Balkan area I was talking about are just some of the loveliest. Many of these countries, formerly of the country of Yugoslavia, a few on the outskirts that were independent, such as Bulgaria, that with a history that makes you feel, you know, very humble, if not kind of just ignorant, having known so very little prior to your arrival. But you can forgive yourself that ignorance, I think, because you've made the point of going there to find out about it. And suddenly, you know, 
go back home with a far greater understanding of history and, you know, in this case, early European history, but thousands of years old in a way that I just didn't anticipate. Yeah, no, it's fascinating. So I want to get to the new book, almost two decades after you published A Thousand Places to See Before You Die, you decided to write Why We Travel. What prompted that? Was it because you were in lockdown and couldn't travel and were thinking deeply, as a lot of us who love it were, about what it is that travel gives us? How did this come about? You know, I've been hearing a lot about pandemic babies. <laughs> this for me was my baby because as you just, you know, implied, we were all with a whole lot of free time. And I actually had started the update of 1000 Places. I wasn't into the whole rearranging my closets thing or baking Irish soda bread. Um, I had this idea that after, you know, two decades of telling people where to go, wouldn't it be this, you know, novel notion to explore the idea of why do you travel? Oh, because I love it. But why do you love it? And what does it do for you? And why is it important to us? So my publisher said that it would be a brilliant idea and a rather easy one. And I always hesitate when people tell me that it won't take much time because although a very seemingly simplistic idea for somebody who, for the first time since she could remember, had a lot of time at her hands, it did in fact take quite a bit of time because I wanted to get it right. I understood that it needed to be as visually captivating as, you know, the anecdotes and the aphorisms and all of that. And it didn't need to be, you know, heavy or particularly philosophical or loaded with text or anecdotes so much as it just needed to be, you know, uplifting and inspiring. So I hope that's what I created. And I have to say that the response has been very, 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 very enthusiastic. And it seemed to have been an auspicious moment for the book to come out because people um, who weren't avid travelers have kind of comfortably fallen into this mode of not traveling. You know, the more you don't travel, the more you don't travel. Um, Netflixing in our sweatpants became, you know, pretty enjoyable, safe and cheap. And now that restrictions have been lifting and not everywhere, amazingly, all this time later, um, people have either been out there with a vengeance or they continue to hesitate. They heard about, you know, last year was something of the, the year from hell with all the cancellations and the lost luggage, you know, and the, it was just nightmare after nightmare that people who were hesitating, it's all they needed to hear. Like, oh, I'm still going to wait a while. But we've, you know, understood that waiting a while is not necessarily what you want to hear because time is precious. You know, we've learned just that, that there are no guarantees. And if lockdowns aren't imposed upon us, then personal situations or circumstances, you know, fall into your life out of the blue. And, you know, we live with this bet that we can always travel when we suddenly decide we want to. But, you know, hey, guess what? So I'm all for encouraging people to get up off the sofa, you know, to make it happen. It's never going to be perfect. It's never going to be free. 
You know, it's never going to be the priority that I think it needs to be unless there's effort from us. And we're the only ones that, you know, can create the life for ourselves that we want. And, you know, hopefully with the pandemic, we're coming to conclusions or to realizations, awareness that maybe had been clouded over when we were caught up in the day-to-day craziness of our lives. You know, here in New York City, there's always something But I hope that people, you know, re-embrace travel, those that already haven't, and resume and recommence. And if you haven't traveled at all, hopefully, you know, now this has been our wake-up call, that travel is, it's invaluable. I, I think what it gives us and offers us and guarantees us in a way that so few other things do I think that it needs to be part of our lives. You know, not extravagantly. Look what we have in our backyard, but um, you're not going to find it on your couch. That's what my message was. There's a line in the book that I loved going to your point about it not being free and it being invaluable. You view travel as an investment in oneself. Can you talk a little bit more about how that resonates with you and where that concept came from? Well, it came from, shall I start when I was four years old? (laughs) And where did we go? We went to the Jersey Shore because it was all we could afford. But I just thought I was the luckiest kid on the block. And, you know, here I am all these years later, and I still have that pinch me kind of, you know, fascination that I've made certain trips happen that aren't inexpensive and that aren't easy. I mean, I just spent harrowing hours trying to get visas to Africa that, you know, had me think, why am I doing this? And of course, in the same breath, I know precisely why I'm doing this, because my friend just told me this morning, it's like childbirth, forget the visa insanity. It's like, once you're there, it's everything. So I never had a lot of money. I can't tell you how many trips were put on credit cards that always somehow got paid for. But I understood slowly but surely over time that whatever brings you joy, whatever you love to do, you need to do more of it. And Warren Buffett just wrote an article that was like thousands and thousands of words long. I mean, he made you, or at least the editor, made you read it through till the end until you read those four words that changed his life, do what you love. And he said, for $100,000, I won't answer the phone if it's to do a project with somebody I don't like, or if it's a quality of work that doesn't interest me. That's my non-verbatim interpretation. But he did say, do what you love. And I think we all understand that early on, but we don't have, you know, the courage or the bravery or the circumstances or the means to make that happen. But I kind of think we all do. It's just how important it is to you and how much effort you want to put out to make it happen. Do you need to, you know, live on a plane? Do you need to bring three generations of your family on a transatlantic cruise. There are other ways to create that same experience or that same fun or that same enthusiasm for experiencing things you haven't yet seen or done or tasted or have even known to be. I think that our finances we think play a greater role in the kind of travel we want to do But there are all kinds of ways. You know, there are home swaps. There are last minute 
air ticket deals that are really too good to ignore. There's a shift in our mentality about getting those precious two weeks of paid vacation and what we need to do with them. Do the kids really need to go to Disney World? Every Christmas break, when those same dollars could buy you and your kids or your grandkids an experience that's like a hundred trillion times more fascinating and memorable. So, um, you know, I, I think that we have all kinds of long lists of reasons that travel can't happen when in fact, I, I think we just need to sit down and have a long talk with ourselves about why it can and how it should. Yeah. And you mentioned in the book, I totally agree with you in many ways that following that joy and not postponing things and just figuring out how to make it happen often results in some really interesting experiences because you have to be a problem solver. But you talk in the book about how your travels in Europe and in North Africa in particular allowed you to gain a different perspective on the U.S. And you learned a lot about yourself and what you value. Can you talk a little bit about that? Some of my earliest travels, because when I was living in um, Spain, in Madrid during my junior year abroad, and then my first years after graduation, when I went to Italy for ancestral research, <laughs> I told my mother, who was such a light in my life and, you know, raised me to think that I was like 500% Italian on my poor German father who was, you know, sucked into the same orbit of my mother's extended Italian family minutes after they walked down the aisle. I had this geographic proximity to Northern Africa that I hadn't really given much thought until I was there and realized that for, you know, the price of a ticket to the cinema, you could get on a ferry or on a cheap flight into any of the Northern African countries. And that's just what I did. And I went quite often. I went, you know, on a dime because as a student or a just barely postgraduate traveler, backpacker, you know, living on a shoestring budget, that was how you did it. And it just was an incredible experience to me. It was my entry to the continent of Africa, which to this day, I always stop in shock when people refer to it as a country or minimize the, the size of it because it's over 50 countries that make up the continent of Africa. And it changes massively from Sahara, Africa in the north. And these are all the Arab countries like Egypt, which is not part of the Middle East. But, you know, hey, <laughs> I understand why people confuse that often. In Algeria, Tunisia, Libya, in Morocco and northwest Sahara, Africa, which is in the north as well. And this was my first entry into um, a whole other world that really just kicked open the door for me with my whole love of that continent. Later on, understanding that, you know, Central and Eastern Africa and the whole safari experience was another OMG moment because I didn't understand that it was something that you simply needed to do in your lifetime. 
And then in January, I'll be going to an area of Africa that remains an enigma to me and a question mark, an area that I've been to somewhat, but only superficially. And that is to um, some of the countries in West Africa, namely Benin, Togo, and Ghana. And so there's so much, you know, with 50 plus countries, the experience from one to the next can be somewhat similar and yet unique unto itself always. The way you find in Europe, people who have done, you know, the grand tour of another generation that was London, Paris, Rome, and feel that they can check off Europe has always fascinated me because, you know, I know you haven't seen Europe. You know, there are 44 countries that make up Europe. And have you really seen it all if you haven't been to some of the less visited countries in Eastern Europe? or in Central Europe, or, you know, if you've been to one Scandinavia country, do you think you've seen them all? So I hope a book like Why We Travel has people understand that there's an embarrassment of possibilities. And as Americans with our passport, and again, we can get a passport in 48 hours, we can get a visa often upon arrival if needed. You know, people need to, I think, open their horizons and understand that you can just never see enough often enough and travel far enough. Because as Americans, it's it's such um, a no-brainer for us. And why we choose not to travel um, has always fascinated me more than why we do choose to travel. Because to me, that's the knee-jerk response to what are you doing this weekend? <laughs> yeah, no, just- that's actually, it's such a good point because you're right. We are so privileged as Americans to not only be able to go to so many places, to be welcome in so many places, to be able to come back so easily to the U.S. And we take that for granted. And there are so many countries where people do not have the access or the ability to be able to travel, not just for economic reasons, but because of political reasons. Yeah. And there's a wonderful quote that is in the book that in Why We Travel, that always comes to mind. To travel is to discover that everyone is wrong about other places because we are very discouraged from traveling to places that are totally welcoming and absolutely open to us and are, you know, a whole lot more interesting than your fourth trip back to the Grand Canyon. But these people who discourage you like nine and a half times out of 10 have never been and perhaps don't even, you know, believe in international travel to begin with. So I do think we need to do our own research. And I do think we need to keep our sense of curiosity alive. And there's a lot in the U.S. and a lot of us discovered and rediscovered just how much we had in the U.S. that was at our fingertips during these past, you know, year or two or three even, when because of the pandemic, um, we were using finally the time and the opportunity to do that great road trip or to explore some of our 63 national parks, each one just more beautiful than the next. I mean, I don't question the validity of people choosing to travel here in the U.S., but I, I just encourage them to kind of mix it up because when you, you know, I want to see all of the national parks, I want to see all 50 states first. Well, okay, (laughs) but let's intersperse that with a little bit, just to, you know, just a smidgen 
of an international trip as well, because that is what creates the perspective. And that's what has you return home with a newfound appreciation and with different eyes. Um, and that's what has you come back with a kind of win-win realization that you've gone abroad, you've gone to someplace totally unique to what you know, but it has you return with this new respect for what we have here and seeing it in different ways. And, you know, sometimes in, in very, you know, profound change of attitude, perspective, or point of view. Well, and I think you just mentioned something to me, which is the reasons that I think travel can be so transformative is because one can have these epiphanies on the road. And often we are just lucky, kismet delivers them. But I love that in the book, you give some pointers on how people might be able to almost inspire some of those epiphanies, like how to prompt you to have an open mind. And, and I know one example you gave was the idea of conquering a new city or climbing a new mountain. In both of those instances, I have had epiphanies, but I'm curious, were there specific mountain climbs or cities that you explored where you had those aha moments that made you decide that this was a prompt to deliver to other people? Oh, a couple hundred thousand million. Let's see what comes to mind. You were talking about um, climbing mountains. I, as a New York City gal, am not all that terribly athletic. <laughs> I'm not a tennis player. I, you know, used to ski, but not so much. Um, but I'm very active and I'm very fit and I'm um, always open for new things and experiences. And um, one thing that had been on my wish list forever um, was the El Camino de Santiago de Compostela, if I may, shortly known as the Camino in Northern Spain, you know, and could I even do it? And did I even think I had it in me? And, you know, was it feasible for me to take precious time? You don't, you know, do it in a day or three or five. I didn't do the full 500 miles of this ancient pilgrimage route across Northern Spain, but I did do 100 that to me may as well have been 500 and it's all doable. And it's all something that really just opens you up to the people you meet along the way, to the beauty of the country, to the antique, you know, thinking of the footsteps you followed over the centuries. El Cid, during the time of the Moors, there were people, you know, who by the millions and it's, it's a very popular thing to do. And yet you can walk for hours and hours and hours through untouched landscape without seeing another soul. And that's precisely um, those images I have, as well as meeting people from all over the world, you know, a professor from Northern Africa from, uh, he was from Morocco and he was exploring the centuries that the Moors were in Spain and especially in southern Spain. And a Swedish grandmother who was taking her fifth grandchild, every year she brings a different grandchild with her to um, walk the Camino because it, the first time she did it alone, it was such a life-changing experience. And something totally, you know, on the other end of the gamut is the first time I ventured into the subway system in Tokyo, <laughs> I thought I'd never see the light of day again. 
but um, it's something beneficial to know that you do not blend in, <laughs> that I was a little bit taller and a little bit more Western looking and a little bit more lost looking. And I can't tell you the people that went out of their way to go beyond their stop to take me to the temple and the garden that I was hoping to get to because it was pre Google apps for translations on your iPhone kind of day. But there's pretty much nothing you can't do if you open yourself up to it, to face your fears, to know that, you know, you're not going to die, you know, at worst case scenario, you've got stories to tell for life as I am in this moment sharing with you. I'm so glad that you picked the Camino. I'm actually going to do it for the first time this spring. I'm not doing the 500 miles either, but I am planning on doing 50 of them. And I'm really excited about it. When I tell you that, you know, if I live to be 100 years old, it's one of those standout memories you'll bring forever with you. You do need to train a tad before you get on the plane to go over. <laughs> I would think. Now, there's another section of the book that I love called Karma. And in that, you shared a story that to me really epitomizes the way that the universe can kind of wink at us on the road when we show up in the right way and we listen to others and we act out of kindness. Would you share that anecdote? Yeah. And, you know, it's it's really resonated with so many people um, who have read it. I didn't really give it a second thought because it's just the way I travel. And you always hope, I suppose, people will treat you the same. But Princess Diana always had a wonderful expression that I'm sure is as old as time. But she said, it's the way you treat people when you really have no intention of them ever responding or returning the favor. And it was um, at JFK in New York City. And um, I was on my way to a very long trip in um, Vietnam where I was uh, meeting a friend there. And since I was flying out of New York City westbound, if not you know north over the North Pole, I was flying through LAX and I thought, well, let me take 48 hours and book my ticket so that I have a two-day layover. And I was at um, JFK and I had struck up a conversation with this lovely gentleman who was kind of similar in age, a little bit older, you know, wearing a baseball cap, looking a little like a fish out of water. And I could tell he was not nervous so much as um, just anxious to, you know, get on with it. And he actually struck up the conversation and long story short, because it could take an hour and a half to tell you the story, but he was going to see his son who lived in LAX and had a newborn baby. And it was his first time on an airplane in 40 years. And he said, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm going to Vietnam actually. And I'm connecting in LAX. And he pointed to his baseball cap and he said, you know, I was in the Navy. And he said, I did four tours of duty during the Vietnam War. And in my head, I put it together that if he hadn't been on a flight in 40 years, I think he said 30, that maybe there was some kind of traumatic or, you know, experience during the war that he just, you know, had felt he did his duty to America and he left it there and he got on with his life. So when they called my name, the gate agent, to come up to the, you know, the boarding area and told me that I had an upgrade because I've got a few miles under my belt with loyalty programs and such, I asked her if I could transfer it 
to this lovely gentleman for the duty to our country. And because he was quite nervous and I explained to her, and she was beyond helpful. I was more excited to sit in economy than I'd ever been in a long time because I knew that. And then I next saw him. He was the first off the plane, of course. And I next saw him at the gate with his son and his newborn grandchild. But the really cool thing was that two days later, when I was back at LAX on my flight from LA to Hanoi, I got another call to come to the boarding area. And I was upgraded to business class long haul, which was a hundred times nicer. And the note from the agent at JFK, whose name was also Patricia, said, you can't give this one away. And she said, kindness begets kindness. And, you know, the offer of my seat in first class that I had never paid for and never expected from JFK to LAX was no big deal. I mean, it meant everything to this fellow and it meant very little to me, except I think that's what we're here for, right? When you have the opportunity and you have the chance and it's kind of screaming at you in the face, aren't we kind of obligated to help our neighbors, you know, the guy sitting next to you in an airport? So I think now he's spoiled for life. (laughs) You know, I have to say, I love that story, but it reminded me of another flight story that a friend told me who was on her way to a connecting flight and her flight was delayed and delayed and delayed. And she ran to the gate and the door had closed. The plane had left and she was so upset. And she said to the gate agent, I can't believe it. She had some big conference she was speaking at and she was like, oh, this is just the end of the world. And she was so upset. And the gate agent said, you know, I am so sorry about your meeting, but it might help you to know that because you missed your flight, but there was one man on the standby list whose mother was dying and he was able to get your seat. And she said, that was it. I didn't care about the conference. The universe works out for a reason. And I was meant to miss that flight, not because I wasn't supposed to speak at the conference, but because he needed to be with his mother. Oh, oh, I've got the goosebumps. I'll never mind missing a flight again. She gave the example of sort of, you know, So often we don't know why things happen in life and we only look at it from our own perspective, but sometimes things happen and and there is a, a good that comes out of it even when it's tough on us. Very, very often those good things happen. I I want to say far more frequently than not, but there's always a monkey wrench being thrown into somebody's machinery and you just have to stand back and reassess and think, how bad is this in the long run? You know, am I going to die? No. So everything else you see in a different perspective. Agree. And I and you and I know agree that when you travel, you have to have that flexible mindset and you've got to figure out how to make the best of whatever comes up because it can never be a predictable thing and you have to go with the flow. And when you do, you get rewarded for it. But I want to get to bucket list trips because that is something that people, because they were locked down in the pandemic and were looking at their lists and feeling that they might never get to do all these things that they've put off, that has really become something people have been very focused on in the last year or so and, and starting to plan. I know this is like an impossible question in a way. I'm not going to ask you to say what is the bucket list trip, but what would your advice be? for the people who want to see great wonders of the world, but don't know how to begin to sort through a thousand places to see before you die? How would you help them prioritize their interests? 
There's also another aphorism by somebody I know not who it is. Let's say it was me. Um, to um, wherever your heart goes, then your brain needs to follow. So those trips where, you know, you've kind of written them off or you've buried them as un- impossible or too expensive or another day or when the kids graduate. I mean, you kind of have to pull them out of oblivion and put them securely at the top of your list because we've spent a few years thinking about um, where we would like to go. And if trips keep popping up to the forefront and, you know, you don't think that they're possible, then I think you need to make them possible because at the end of the day, you don't want to, you know, fill your heart with um, regret so much as appreciation for all of those places that did uh, transpire. So this girl comes to mind when you were talking about Antarctica. So it was quite a traveled group we had on our expedition ship, with the exception of, you know, a few people. And one is this woman from Seattle who had only been out of the country once to Portugal and then returned as a teacher and spent the next 11 years saving up for Antarctica because that's how special it was to her. So I'm not saying that you need to save for 11 years to make your dream trip happen, but you need to prioritize and you need to, you know, also somebody told me once that if you give up your Starbucks coffee every day, at the end of the year, you can buy an airline ticket to just about anywhere. If you do the math, you understand how you can make these trips happen. You can. So is it ancestral travel like me with my fascination for all things, you know, Italian? Is it this idea that, you know, natural beauty and wildlife and the the African safari that you've always wanted since you, you know, you were dragged to Broadway to see the Lion King? You know, what is it that has always sparked you? And it's useless if you go to someplace because it's the more available and the less expensive option out there, if you're still going to come back and dream about the place you haven't yet been to. So I wanted to ask you, because I also love practical tips and you have some in the book. You have a section called defensive packing tips, which I think is so great. Will you share some of those? Yeah, people think that it's very old school and they won't need it and they're smarter than you and they're better traveled than you and nothing has ever happened. So I don't really need to, but, you know, let me tell you (laughs) that, uh, you know, knock on wood, nothing has ever happened, but if it does, I'm ready. And one thing is um, cash and people think, oh, where are there not ATMs these days? But I'm here to tell you many countries do not have them in the number you would hope for or need and oftentimes they're out of cash. You always need cash, but do you need to carry it all in one place so that if your bag is stolen, you're out of luck? So I always divide cash up, whether it's a couple hundred or a thousand, because I'm going to a place that you know I've been told you need to understand that cash may be a concern. But I divide it up into three places. One envelope I put in my check-in luggage, which is never safe. But hey, what if your carry-on gets stolen? One goes in the carry-on because what if your check-in luggage gets stolen? 
And one goes on, carry on being my personal item, my purse, my bag, or my whatever your carry on item is if you're traveling by air. And one goes in an envelope, thank you, grandma, that goes either into my bra, into my sock, into a zippered pocket in my pants, someplace on my person. So that if all three options are not ever questioned, you've lost nothing except the effort of making three divisions of your cash. But should something go wrong, you're covered. And then another defensive thing was, again, oh, I have a copy of my passport on my iPhone. I've taken a photo of my passport. Or, you know, I've got this app and that app. How many people have lost their phones? So I make the old school Xerox copy printouts in three of my visas, my passports, my credit cards, front and back, telephone numbers, pat, you know, whatever you need. And one goes in my bag, one copy, one set of copies goes in my bag, one goes in my check-in luggage, and one set I leave behind with somebody at home who I know that if I call them at two o'clock in the morning from the embassy, <laughs> or if I get one last phone call from jail, <laughs> And, you know, Marrakesh or Malta, that I'll know that they'll have all of the information that I'm lacking. So and there are numerous other things, too. Do you roll or do you conventionally pack? I'm a cube person. I'm an oh, absolute wow. fanatic about packing cubes. Those I love. Thank you for sharing them. And, and the other ones are in the book. There's great tips in there. Do you think that you have already taken trip of your lifetime or is it still coming? That's a great question. I want to feel that if something happens to me tomorrow, I will not feel that I left X unseen. There's no burning destination that I absolutely have to see before I die, with the exception maybe of New Zealand. <laughs> oh, gosh, you still haven't gotten to New Zealand. I know. You know, I'm manifesting now for years because I keep thinking oh. if I put it out there, somebody's going to say, you know, a month from next Thursday, I'm going to New Zealand, want to come and we'll make it happen. I can't tell you how many times I've been to Australia, but it's not like you can put four days aside and on your way there, stop in New Zealand and see a little. No, no, no. You know, They're totally different. That's one of the biggest misconceptions that drives me crazy as somebody who's got an Australian passport where people think I'm just going to do Australia and New Zealand in one two week trip. And I'm, you know, yeah. it's completely impossible. Australia is a massive country with tons of regions and the same thing with New Zealand. And they're totally different. But you have to get there. I know it really is on the top of my list. Um, but if I died tomorrow and I didn't go, I still would have been beyond happy with my life experience. For sure. And the reason that I say you have to go is, to me, New Zealand is one of those places that really is the greatest hits of man's natural wonders in one spot. And Antarctica does cold. Mother Nature has done cold there better than she's done it anywhere else. And it's unbelievably dramatic and exciting. And there are parts of the world that have, you know, done the tropics beautifully, but New Zealand kind of mashes it all up so you can be in a fern forest 
one afternoon and then, you know, walk up to the beach and pull oysters out of the sea and the next morning be on top of a glacier. And it's crazy that there's so much variety of just major, great natural beauty and in one spot. And fantastic people. Amazing. Kiwis. Yeah. Well, it's been such a pleasure, Patricia, as always. I love catching up with you and I can't wait to hear about your West African adventures because those are three countries I have yet to travel to, too. There are many places on my wish list that I still have to get to, and those are certainly on it. So I can't wait to hear everything. I'm excited. We need to start 2023. Everyone says it's going to be a banner year. And let's hope, you know, from their lips to the travel gods' ears, because um, we had a pretty good indication, 2022, the number of people who are traveling again. And I, I hope it's even more, and to places that are at the top of our list, because at the end of the day, you just never know. Thanks, Patricia. Thank you very much. Thank you, Melissa. Absolutely. I want to thank Patricia Schultz for being with us today and taking the time to discuss her new book, Why We Travel, available on Amazon and wherever you buy books. Stay tuned for my tips on how to conquer jet lag. Passport to Everywhere with Melissa Biggs-Bradley will continue. Follow Melissa on Instagram at Indigari Founder. Travel Hacks with Melissa Biggs-Bradley from From Passport Passport to Everywhere. Everywhere. I've acquired over the years for how to master jet lag. I guess one of the benefits of this crazy schedule is that I frequently get to test my jet lag cures. And while I haven't perfectly mastered changing time zones, I have picked up many tricks over the years that do help me adjust as seamlessly as possible with minimal discomfort. Because whether you're traveling for work or for leisure, jet lag can negatively impact the first few days of your trip. So here are a few tricks to prevent that from happening and to ease the time zone adjustment. My first tip is you should begin by adjusting your body clock early. And by early, I mean a few days before your departure. Start shifting your sleeping and eating schedules to be closer to those that you will be adopting at your destination. If you're headed to Europe from New York, wake up a bit earlier each day and move your meals a bit earlier so that on the days that I depart from New York to Europe, I get up no later than 4 a.m., which is 10 a.m. in Europe. I set my watch to European time then. And then at 7 a.m., which is 1 p.m. in Europe, I'll eat lunch. And six hours later, before I go to the airport, 1 p.m. New York and 7 p.m. in Europe, I'll have my quote-unquote dinner. Then when I get to the airport and I get on my 7 or 8 p.m. flight, my body knows from a time and food perspective that it's bedtime. I go to sleep as soon as I get on board. And whether you use natural sleeping aids like melatonin or magnesium or over-the-counter or prescription aids like Tylenol PM or Xanax, try to sleep when you would be sleeping where you're going. Sleep rituals also help to cue your body to sleep. So bring a sleep mask and earplugs to make sure that your space is dark and quiet regardless of what else is going on around you in the cabin. Next, and this is a controversial one, but I try to never eat on a flight. I got this advice from a Singapore airline stewardess on a commercial flight that was 18 and a half hours from Singapore to New York. There are numerous theories as to why you shouldn't eat on a plane. One is that there's so much salt in the airplane food to make it tasty that you become unnecessarily bloated and lethargic. Another is that at such high altitudes, your digestive system slows down 
almost as it would as if you were under anesthesia. Most people will tell you that they eat on planes not because they're hungry, but because they're bored. And this is especially easy to avoid when you're traveling from the U.S. to Europe on a night flight. Because if you skip the meal on the plane, you arrive hungry, and instead you get to eat something much more delicious than plain food at a cafe in Paris or Rome. It's harder on a long day flight, but on those, I try to stick to eating something before boarding, maybe fasting a little bit, or just eating really easy to digest foods like soups. The other thing that's really important is to hydrate inside and out. Pressurized cabins have super low humidity levels, between 10 and 20%, versus a normal average of 40 to 70%. So this dries out your skin and can make you sleepy. It's also been said that on a 10-hour flight, you can lose two liters of water from the low humidity. To counteract this, the best remedy is to drink plenty of water. To avoid having to wait for the steward to provide refills, I tend to bring a large bottle on board or ask for multiple bottles at once. I also always bring rehydration powders to add to the water, like drip drop or liquid IV, which have extra electrolytes, sodium and potassium, which restores hydration faster than just drinking plain water. You obviously also shouldn't drink coffee or alcohol as they dehydrate. I wash my face as soon as I board, and this is again part of those sleep cues telling your body that it's time to go to bed. You can use La Fresh or MAC face towelettes, which are great for travel if you don't want to wait in line for the bathroom. And then I put a heavy serum and moisturizer with an SPF on, since when you're in the air, you're exposed to more UVB rays at a high altitude. And then when you land, if it's daytime, spend time in the sun. As soon as you arrive at your destination, try to get outside or somewhere inside where you're exposed to daylight so that your natural melatonin levels can adjust to the new time zone. And you should really try to resist napping. And if you do, if you're totally exhausted, it's best not to give in to the urge to lie down for very long. So sleep for no more than an hour. Longer naps are just going to disrupt your body clock further, and it's going to be hard to get on the new schedule. The other thing that helps is fitting in a workout or a massage on your first day. Those are good ways to not nap, and even a 20-minute workout or a massage is beneficial. Finally, on my very first night in a new destination, I will often take something to help me sleep through the night. Your body won't be totally adjusted even if you follow all of these tips, so it's possible that you'll wake up in the middle of the night and have a hard time going back to sleep. A time-release melatonin or another sleep aid is really useful. On another episode, I will share my thoughts on the best and worst sleep aids. I'm not a doctor, so I won't be giving medical advice, but I will be sharing some personal stories and shocking tales about the ambient zombies that many flight attendants and some of our travelers have encountered at 35,000 feet. I hope these tips help ease your travels. Huge thank you to Patricia Schultz for joining us today. To learn more about her travels and her books, check out her website at 1000PlacesToSeeBeforeYouDie.com. Next week on Passport to Everywhere, I'll be joined by Jessica Nabongo to learn about her experiences as the first black woman to travel to every country in the world. In the meantime, I'd love to hear about your best and worst travel experiences, any travel hacks you'd like to hear me address on the show, any guests you'd like me to interview, and of course, your questions. So leave a message at 646-535-7297. Send us a note on Instagram at Indigari Travel or write us an email at passport at SiriusXM.com. Thank you for listening to the show and see you soon. The adventure.
Adventure continues next week. Find more episodes of Passport to Everywhere with Melissa Biggs Bradley streaming now on all podcast platforms and anytime on the SXM app. Follow Melissa on Instagram at, at Indigari Founder. And for more on Melissa, head to Indigari.com. I N D A G A R E. Send us your questions about travel, passport at SiriusXM.com or call us at 646 535 7297. This has been Passport to Everywhere.